Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a collection of short personal stories about real events from my life that I can't help telling over and over again. Many of these stories prove the old adage that life can be stranger than fiction. I've decided to make a podcast where with each episode, I retell one of the best of these stories with music and sound. My therapist thinks that maybe in this way, I'll be able to stop compulsively retelling my stories. Well, we'll see about that. This week's story is about how, in a large extended family, you can win a bet and still lose big time. Never bet your car. Just after graduating from college, I married my wife, Lisa, and became part of a large, extended, first-generation immigrant family in the Bronx. My father-in-law, whom my wife called Little Phil, but never to his face, had been in the bag trade, making a successful line of beautifully crafted clutch purses. He'd made so much money that he decided to retire at age 40 spending the next 40 years sitting around the house in a smoking jacket, listening to classical music, and slowly driving his wife Kate, a former Ziegfeld Follies girl, crazy. The rest of the extended family were less affluent folks, some blue-collar, some white. Every other weekend, Kate and Phil hosted a large dinner party for the entire extended family and put out a real spread, exotic foods and drinks of all sorts. Their apartment was quite a spread, too, Nine rooms in a fashionable Grand Concourse Art Deco building with a sunken living room to boot. By New York standards, the dining room was exceptionally large and could accommodate a very long table which comfortably seated 20, and if guests squeezed in, quite a few more. Since I was the only outsider ever to marry into the family, I was quite the object of fascination at the first such dinner that I attended and the table was extra-packed with aunts and uncles and cousins and nieces and nephews who wanted to take a look. Having just been married and just arrived in the Bronx, part of the purpose of the dinner was to help us get set up in our new apartment. Uncle Harold, who owned an appliance store on 125th Street in Harlem, sold us an air conditioner at cost. The same was true with the uncle who had a furniture store in Queens and the retired aunt who'd inherited a kitchenware business downtown. The big-ticket item of the day was for us to get a car. No one owned a dealership, but my wife's cousin Kenny had a used Renault 10 for sale for $1,200. At that point in my life, I knew nothing about cars and had no idea that the French had no idea how to make a car. In fact, I thought the idea of owning a French car was quite sophisticated. The plan was for my wife and I to join cousin Kenny for a test drive after dinner and before drinks and dessert. The three of us entered the Art Deco elevator with its neatly designed porthole windows and descended to street level where sat the Renault. Kenny's initial observation about the car was to point to the driver's seat and inform us that that was where he got his first blowjob. By this time, my wife and I had lived together throughout college and were very close in every way, so when she gave me a wink and a nod, I knew exactly what she meant. We all entered the small, tight passenger compartment, and I pulled out into traffic on the concourse. The first thing I noticed were a couple of hiccups as I shifted gears, 
signaling the possibility of some damaged gear teeth. Next, I could feel that the steering was loose and the brakes were spongy. I had to press way down on the brake pedal to get the car to come to a full stop at the first traffic light we came to. I'd already seen enough to know that there was no way I was going to pay $1,200 for this bucket of bolts, however European it might be. I decided to lowball Kenny with an offer of $600, but needed to clear the plan with my wife. Just at that moment, we got back to the concourse where Kenny said, take a right to get back to Kate's. Now, I've always had a great sense of direction, and this day was no exception. So I countered with, no, Kate's is to the left. Kenny said, no way, I grew up in the Bronx, go right. I'm sorry, but you're mistaken. No, I'm not, turn right. I challenged him with, would you care to make a bet on it? Sure, no problem, Kenny responded. So let's bet the car, I suggested. Yeah, why not? But you're going to lose. As I reached across and we shook on the bet, I thought to myself that it was a stupid bet because if I won, I got the car, but he got nothing if I lost. As we pulled back onto the concourse and I turned left, which was the driver's choice, Kenny winced and groaned. Oh, shit. I thought we turned around on Eastburn, not on Burnside. Well, my friend, you just lost yourself a car. I was feeling pretty good about myself, having just won a free car. Kenny went silent for the rest of the test drive, slumping down in his seat, peering out the passenger side window. He couldn't meet my eyes. Meanwhile, my wife had leaned forward and away from Kenny, whispering sharply into my left ear, Greg, you can't do this. Of course I can. I won the bet fair and square, but you'll be hated by my family for this. At this point, Kenny straightened up a bit in his seat, hoping that she might prevail. Sorry, but a bet is a bet. Now, I come from a betting family. Many an argument was settled by a bet, and the more sure the bettors were, the larger the sums that were bet. I can remember dozens of $100 bets and even a few $1,000 wagers being made back when both were a lot of money, and it was a matter of honor to pay your bets. All this informed my thinking when I whispered back, and who knows why we were whispering because Kenny could hear every word in the tiny car. Betting is a sacred tradition in my family, and now we own a car, Lisa, free and clear. We exited the car, and Kenny left without a word to go up to the dinner party, leaving Lisa and I to go at it unimpeded. But I refused to budge. I finished with, Kenny shouldn't have bet it if he couldn't afford to lose it. Meanwhile upstairs, Kenny was making some clever moves. He avoided the dining room and his father, who he of course didn't tell about what he had done, but he did speak to his favorite uncle, who in turn enlisted another uncle to his cause. When Lisa and I re-entered the dining room, the two uncles corralled me, and as they led me out of the room, one of the aunts sang out in a bright voice, So how was the test drive? When no one responded, and I was spirited out of the room, a murmur of consternation swept over the dinner party. The two uncles pulled me into a side bedroom, leaving Kenny in the hallway. It was as if Lisa had prepped them. Greg, you can't do this. When I started to make my case, they both interrupted, whispering loudly, You don't understand. Kenny isn't right in the head, said Uncle Number One. Then Uncle Number Two added, Yeah, he's somewhat feeble-minded. You can't take advantage of him like this. Uncle Number One rejoined, He has a disability. What you're doing just isn't right. Just pay him for the car. At that moment, my wife entered the room with another heartfelt plea, and I was done for. So I begrudgingly agreed to buy the car. 
The worst part was that with all this back and forth, I hadn't stuck to my original strategy of making the lowball offer, and now I would have to pay full price. When we re-entered the dining room and word spread, there was a toast and smiles all around, except on my face, of course. I was such a schmuck. The car turned out to be far more of a jalopy than I had feared. I had to have the carburetor replaced and new brake pads put on. Then there was no end to the problems that followed. I had devised a little wire hook to keep the accelerator throttle revving high enough to keep the car from stalling out. One day at a stoplight on a busy corner in the Bronx, it stalled out while I was in traffic. As the light turned green and the taxi behind me laid on the horn, I threw myself out of the car in a fury and ripped open the hood. In the process of reattaching the makeshift throttle wire, I managed to burn my thumb so badly that it blistered. That was it. I left the hood open, slammed the driver's side door, and kicked it in with all my might. I abandoned that French piece of shit in the middle of the street and headed into a bar on the corner. Miracle of miracles, the cops arrived before my double scotch did, and they forced me to return to my vehicle. They must have been in their squad car, waiting in the line of traffic that I had created. It's been many years since my divorce from Lisa and her whole family, but I still have a special nasty little pocket of regret about not sticking to my guns. It's buried deep in my body and re-emerges whenever the subject of wagering or French automobiles or extended families comes up. Cousin Kenny never comes up, though, and if he ever did, I'd still love to tell him exactly where to stick his supposedly feeble-minded head. Compulsive Storyteller is produced by Peter Kokoma and me, Greg Lefebvre. Our theme music was made by Peter Kokoma. Additional music in this episode by Paul Dukas. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to the Compulsive Storyteller on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, and it would be great if you'd leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. Mm-hmm.